If you believe that his love ran red for you, would you say amen? I'm glad to welcome you here on Memorial Day weekend and welcome in our live streaming audience who are watching online as well. Just really glad that you're part of this and what we get to talk about this morning. I'm going to ask you to go to Mark chapter 8 with me this morning, if you would, if you have your Bibles. While you're turning there, I just want to talk to you about Memorial Day for just a minute. When uh, my wife and I were raising our children in, in, through the grade school ages, um, typically we would go to Memorial Day Parade in Williamston and would watch the, the parades unfold and all the veterans walking and individuals that we could celebrate. And, and then um, part of our practice was to take the kids after the parade and go to a local cemetery. And obviously it's not hard to find a cemetery around, but finding one where there's quite a few of fallen military veterans is, is not as easy. So we found one specific one where there were just scads and scads of individuals who died in service to the country or had been veterans and had passed away later in life. But um, typically we would go to a cemetery and just park the car and be quiet and just let the kids listen to the wind and the birds and see the flags that were just moving, red, white, and blue, all over the place. I would encourage you maybe in the next 24 hours to find a place where you can see the price that was paid for individuals who gave their life for this country. And specifically, we get the freedom that we get to talk about Jesus this morning because of individuals who gave such a huge sacrifice for us. So I, I know Memorial Day is about those who have fallen and who have given us that freedom, but I'm suspecting there's probably a few veterans in our service this morning. If there is, would you mind serving or standing so that we can honor your service? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful for what you've done. Well, I want to go with you into Mark chapter 8, but before we do that, would you pray with me? Let's join together. Father, we come before you recognizing that um, what we're about to do requires more than just reading and, and requires more than just man's intellect. It requires the power of your Holy Spirit to give us insight. We're asking for you to show us things that we can't understand or comprehend on our own because they're things that are spiritually apprised. And that means it requires your Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us and give us insight. So especially as we look at this profound passage this morning in, in which Jesus wanted us to understand more and more of who he is. God, I ask for those who have gathered together today that you would speak to us. You would, you would transcend the ages, even though this was written 2,000 years ago. Show us how it's relevant to our life today. And we will ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This is the background on Mark chapter 8. Jesus finds himself on a journey. He's gone on a road trip. And he's taken the disciples 120 miles north of Jerusalem into what's known as Gentile territory, the region of Caesarea Philippi. So join me in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. It reads this way. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? Does that not seem like a really arrogant question, right? It, like if anybody else would ask that question, you would think, whoa, you're like really full of yourself. You really want to know what people think of you, right? So, but when Jesus asks it, we understand there's something else going on. He's not asking this out of arrogance, and he's certainly not asking it because he doesn't know. What he's obviously doing is he's drawing the disciples into a question, into a discussion. 
The background on Caesarea Philippi is this. It, it's this area known as previously, historically, Panaeus. It's, it's where the god Pan was worshipped. So when you think of pantheism, Panaeus is the, the root of it. it. It was also recognized as this place that had um, a, a cave structure that was known as the gates of hell. Jesus is leading them there to this region of Caesarea Philippi, and he's going to have a discussion with them about the gates of hell, but that's for another time. We're not going to get into that today. He's specifically along the way asking this one huge question. What do people say about me? That, that's the one question that will silence a room. You ever tried that in a party? Just bring up the Jesus question, right? So what do you guys think about Jesus, right? The room just goes dead. People don't know how to respond, what to say to that, because they're not really sure. It, it's not in this case that Jesus is unaware, but because he wants us to think about the bigger question, who is Jesus to me? That's a question I'm going to ask you this morning over and over again. Who is Jesus to you? The background on this particular setting in Mark chapter 8 is that Jesus is less popular than what he was at the very beginning when he first started out. Even though he's got these amazing, miraculous powers, he's God on display. He's showing everyone what it looks like to be God on earth. He's less popular than he was when he started for this reason. Because he uses his powers for the benefit of establishing who he is and not using them to take political control. Because individuals living in the first century thought, well, when the Messiah comes, he's certainly going to be a political ruler and he's going to be a military ruler. So why isn't this one using his powers to embrace the seat of power? But Jesus, on contrary, leaves the seat of power. He leaves Jerusalem, goes 120 miles away. That leaves people confused. Now the disciples, are, they're just like the rest of the individuals, and, and they have to answer the question that Jesus has just asked, verse 28. This is their response. They told him, saying, John the Baptist... And others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. That's their response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? And when they say, some say John, that is a terrifying response. Because like John the Baptist has been dead for a year and a half, right? He was beheaded. So are they thinking like reincarnation? Is Jesus like the undead? Is that what they're thinking? Here's why the response is that way. They can't explain the miracles. They know it's not human. It doesn't make sense to individuals. They can't explain where this is coming from. And, and when they say others say Elijah, they're talking about intensity personified because Elijah was like this really intense individual. And then they say, well, others say the, the prophets. Here's what I understand. People see in Jesus the character of John, the fire and the intensity and the passion of Elijah and the stalwart determination of the prophets. But all the answers say one thing. They all say, he's a man, right? All of them are saying, he's a guy. It's obvious people are captivated by Jesus, but they can't explain him. I want you to see a quote from Napoleon from 1815 that you'll see on the screen. Let's, let me read that to you. Napoleon said this, I know men, and Jesus was no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. I tell you, all these were men. Jesus Christ was more than a man. 
So Jesus is going to take the response of the disciples to a whole new level by asking a personal question. Go with me into the passage again, verse 29. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? It's really personal, right? Jesus is blank. How do you fill in that question this morning? Jesus is blank to me. I'm going to put a statement on the screen that's going to seem like a hard shift, but trust me, it really plays into what we're doing. There's a biblical principle. Look at this with me. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. If that statement is true, if faith is my response to what God has revealed, what do you do with what God has revealed in Jesus? It's the very issue that the disciples are facing. That's what they're left with. How do they respond to what God has revealed? Because he's not just a historical figure. And he's doing things that mere man cannot do. So what do you do with this one? So Peter's got a response. Go back into the passage with me. Verse 29, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now you notice when you read the story that Jesus isn't asking Peter specifically, right? But Peter's always the first to throw the answer out there. He speaks on behalf of the other 12 and and just puts it right out there. He's willing to step further than anybody else has yet. So Jesus asked the question. Peter throws it out there. You are the Christ. Matthew records that there's even more to Peter's answer than what you saw in Mark's version. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 16, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The the story is parallel in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 16. Now there's a God moment. Peter says, this isn't street talk. I'm not speculating about who you are. Here's a specific answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why is that so significant? Because culture. Peter lives within culture. He lives in pop culture of the first century. And pop culture believes that Jesus is just a guy. He's just the forerunner. He's like Elijah or John or one of the prophets. But to say he's the son of the living God, see, Peter has stepped off the ledge here. You you can't have a higher exclamation. Above all beings, no higher position available. So what has Peter done? He's responded to the revelation that God has given. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. God revealed something. Peter has responded to it. So Jesus' response back to Peter is, God bless you, Peter, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You go to Matthew 16, this is Jesus' words. God bless you, Peter, because my Father in heaven, he revealed this to you. Flesh and blood could not possibly have shown you what you know. He wants him to understand pop culture didn't give you that information. Pop culture is predisposed to a temporal king, and you can't overcome your predisposition unless God intervenes. Go back into the story with me into verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now, why is that? People asked in the Saturday night service last night, why wouldn't Jesus want people to know who he is? Because pop culture has a misconception of the role of Messiah. They believe that God does things this way. So pop culture has a misconception of the Messiah. Jesus is saying, no, this is how God acts. So he's going to show his disciples something really, really, really hard. Something very difficult, hard for them to even process. Go with me to verse 31. Verse 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. If you're keeping notes this morning, maybe you pulled them out of your bulletin or you have your own Bible open and you want to write in your Bible, began to teach those three words. Those very specific because what we're seeing here is that Jesus began to teach something new, something that they hadn't heard before. He had previously spoken of his own death. He had said, yeah, you destroy this body, and I'll raise it up again in three days. And the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He'd he'd spoken about that, but that was kind of ambiguous. They didn't really know. But Mark tells us in verse 32, part A, look with me on the screen, and he was stating the matter plainly, meaning there's no confusion this time. Jesus is saying so specifically they can't miss it. I want to go backwards with you before I go forward into verse 31. And verse 31 is this word must. Remember this word must because I'm going to show you four ways Jesus said something must happen. This must in verse 31 is not a human commitment to an ideal, right? It's not like saying Mark must go to the gym and start working out because he's been eating too much pizza, right? Okay. Tracking with me? All right, it's not that kind of, we, don't, we set standards for ourselves. The human ideal, I, I must go to work, or I, I must pay my bills. This is not a human ideal. This is a divine imperative. When Jesus says something must happen, he means it's an absolute necessity. Why? Because there's no alternate plan. John MacArthur summed it up this way. You'll see his quote on the screen. This must came thundering out of eternity, the essential, unalterable plan of God. Let me show you the four must and how the disciples processed what Jesus has just said. Look with me on the screen. These four must. I must suffer many things, meaning torture. I must be rejected by the leaders, meaning the leaders of the nation. Must be killed must rise again. Now, the fourth must is a must of victory, right, church? Okay. The the fourth must is a must of victory. Now, imagine, though, if you're the friends of the one who just said this. Can you imagine the incredible distress at hearing one of your own personal friends say, things are not going to go well for me this year? I'm going to be tortured. And the leaders of our nation, they're going to reject me and and no one's going to rescue me. And the result is I'm going to be killed. I'll be murdered, executed. I believe the disciples are stuck on those first three, yet it's the truth of the fourth must that makes all the other ones purposeful. But I'm pretty sure they didn't hear the fourth one because Peter's reply makes it really clear. He's not heard Jesus' words. He's stuck on the first three. Go with me to verse 32 again, part B. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't think it's in your notes this morning, but on the screen you're going to see this Greek word. And this particular word has some pretty strong implications behind it. The word rebuke that is used of Peter when he begins speaking to Jesus is the exact same way that Jesus spoke to the demons when he rebuked them. 
The word is so powerful, it has the implications of a person who is in authority speaking to someone who is under them. And Peter has just taken this position with Jesus. No, this will not happen. As a matter of fact, the way that it's written in the, in the Greek, it's a present infinitive. It actually suggests that Peter did this over and over and over again. Now check this. Peter's part of culture. Just like you and I are part of culture. He's part of the first century culture. And culture has influenced him. Pop culture has a concept of what God is and what God isn't. But God has just said who he is and how he's going to act. Because what Jesus said is so utterly contrary to what Peter strongly believes about God, the plain speaking is too much. Mark said he spoke really plainly, right? But Jesus said it plainly and it's too much for Peter. So catch this, Peter just publicly declared You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet when God acts in a way that doesn't fit Peter's agenda, he's really quick to place his own personal goals above God. Do you find yourself in a place where you're really quick to fault Peter? I I used to be there. As the years have gone on, I've matured in my understanding that I'm just as prone to do what he did, but it's really easy to put on Peter's sandals. It is so easy to accept God's activities when things are going exactly the way we want them to go. But when things start turning and things aren't working out the way we want them to go, we begin very, very quickly to do what Peter's done and say, wait, 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 time out here. This isn't the way I understand God to act. So we're talking about a lordship issue here, church. So Peter, we're told, reinforces his statement according to Matthew, what Matthew wrote. He says it this way, this shall never happen. That's pretty forceful. Now wait now, Jesus just declared it must happen. God the Son said four times, this must happen. This is the way it's going to happen. And Peter is saying, no, this is not the way it's going to happen. Is that not a really dangerous place to be when you begin arguing with God about what he wants to do? He stepped right into the danger zone, right? Because Peter has just placed his will above the will of God. Here's how it happens. Because he can't accept God's plan. So, check yourself on this. It's one thing to call Jesus God It's another thing completely to give unconditional surrender to him. It's one thing to recognize he's Savior. It's another thing to call him Lord. And that's what Peter finds himself up against. Uh, If you're a Bible student and and you know this story, maybe you've read it a long time, you know where this is going because Jesus is going to have a response to him, right, in verse 33. But just let me ask you a question before we go to verse 33. Do you think in this moment that Jesus sighed like, Peter, I'm guessing, right? I'm just speculating here. Let's go into verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Do you think that Jesus said this gentle? There's a little participation going on here, crowd, all right? I know it's Memorial Day weekend. Do you you think that Jesus was gentle with this? 
I'm thinking he's probably not, right? Because we've just been told, hey, wait, people think you're like John the Baptist. What was John? He was total intensity. What was Elijah? Passion unbridled. I'm thinking it was more like this. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. Make no mistake. He means what he says. Here is why the rebuke is so severe. The severity of this rebuke is because the intent is to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. The very thing he arrived on planet earth for was to die for our sins, to glorify the Father, to draw us into relationship. And that's the very thing that Peter has said. It's not going to happen. If you want to go one step further with what Jesus said, just look at the Matthew account. Matthew 16 But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. I think Jesus is looking Peter in the eye. Get behind me, Satan. It is absolutely hard to imagine a more shocking statement for Peter to hear. I think it's absolutely devastating. And probably he's rocking him to his core. He's just been accused of being a mouthpiece for Satan. The word Jesus used, stumbling block, it's the word scandalon. So when individuals in the first century were setting bait traps for animals, there, there was always the plate that they set the bait on. The, the trap plate that the bait was set on was called the scandalon. It, it's the English word scandal. It's where it comes from. So the scandalon was this place that would, would hold what was the lure if you're catching a mouse, you'd put cheese there. If you're catching maybe a coyote, you'd put a piece of raw, bloody meat. Jesus has just said to Peter, you are the scandalon. You are the, the bait. Satan is using Peter to set a trap for Jesus. Now catch this. Peter has been a believer for some time. He walks with Jesus. When believers insist on their own way above God's way, we can become a stumbling block. Because a stumbling block is simply someone who's working towards interfering with God's actions. And God's calling them out on it. And he even tells Peter why. Look look with me at verse 33, part B. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Uh, On the surface, just, you know, because it's comfortable here on a Sunday morning, we're reading this story and looking at it like, man, it looks like Peter's just trying to be compassionate, right? It looks like he's just like, I don't want my friend to die. I don't, I don't want to bear with the thought of him suffering. Satan knows us. God knows you intimately, but Satan knows human nature. Satan is an ancient foe. He's been around a long, 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 long time. And he's had a lot of time to study the activity of humans. And he knows where we're weak. And he knows Peter's weaknesses. And he plays on that. And he goes to work with what he knows. And he places a thought in Peter's mind. The exact same thought he tried to use on Jesus in the midst of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What God asks of you is too hard. It's too big of a price to pay. 
a loving God would never do that. See, that's the bait of Satan, and Peter responds to that. So we have a Christ follower who proclaims Jesus as Savior, but struggles to let him be Lord over his life. If such a thing can happen to Peter, can it happen to you? Yeah, I see the nodding heads and I'm nodding with you, right? We can do the exact same thing. When we follow our own emotion, I'm talking about going with our feelings as opposed to what God's word says is true, the same person who can take the side of God can find themselves unwittingly taken on the activities of Satan. It's remarkable to me how quickly Jesus recognizes this and he knows the source of the thought. So just as surely as God revealed to Peter who Jesus is, blessed are you Peter, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal to you who I am but my father in heaven. God revealed that to him, who Jesus is, just as surely as God did that. Satan immediately pounces on following up that confession and counteracts the statement. Move, counter move. Does this look like spiritual warfare? That's what it looks like. This is spiritual warfare. In the moments when you experience the greatest spiritual highs in your life, don't you also at the same time find, bam, broadsided by Satan in that same moment? You're experiencing what we're reading about right here. You find yourself on a spiritual high. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in a moment, you find yourself encountering spiritual harassment, maybe even defeat. If that's you, remember this passage. Satan attempts to use one of the great future leaders of the church to oppose God by luring Jesus to disobey God's will. See, this has got Satan's fingerprints all over it. That's why Jesus so quickly recognizes this. The temptation is extremely real, lest you read this passage with disregard. Remember, Jesus is fully man, right? So make sure we're on the same page. Jesus is fully man, right, church? Okay. He's also fully God. Fully man has seen and knows exactly what a crucifixion looks like. Fully man knows what's before him. He knows the physical agony he's about to endure. Fully God knows he's about to wear the weight of the sin of the world. This is a real temptation. Satan's not just throwing this out like a piece of candy. There's a temptation there or he wouldn't have used it. So from Jesus' rebuke back to Peter, we get this really important lesson that's running as an undercurrent underneath this story. God's way of salvation is not anything like man's way of salvation. They don't resemble each other. God's kind of Messiah is not man's kind of Messiah. So the person who insists on his own kind of Savior and on coming to God on his own terms completely finds himself opposing God. That's how you know this salvation of God was completely planned of God because no human would ever devise that kind of a rescue, would we? We just wouldn't do it. Peter's just a representative of the human race saying, no way. Why would you be tortured? Why would you go to the cross? See, this is in perfect consistency with the nature and the character of God. He has to die for us. There has to be a price paid. 
Go forward with me into the story, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus is talking about a step here that most people would just as soon ignore. Matter of fact, I can tell you in my younger years when I came to this passage in the Bible, I was really good with Jesus chastising Peter, right? Yeah, go get him. Can't believe you screwed up again, Peter. But when you come to the part about denying yourself and taking up your cross, like I'm doing speed reading over the top of that. Because then he starts talking to me. He's not just talking to Peter, he's talking to the group here. And he's talking about taking a step most of us would just like to ignore because it's so radical. Most of us have a really difficult time relating to it. He's talking about making him Lord over your life. What does that really look like? Well, he tells you. He says you've got to deny yourself. What, what does that mean? To deny yourself is to renounce yourself as the dominant element in life. That sounds really hard, doesn't it? Like, well, how do I shut myself down? It's placing God's will before your own will no matter what meaning utterly disowning your own self-interest in favor of Jesus' lordship. We deny ourselves things all the time. If you want to buy something, you deny yourself buying something else so you can save a little bit of money to get to the point where you can own it. If you want to lose weight, you deny yourself eating certain foods, right? So we deny ourselves, we understand that, but this denying of self to which Jesus is talking about is not your personal identity. He's not talking about shutting out your personality. That is not biblical. You are a distinct, uniquely created individual designed in the image of God. You're not a robot. So that can't be what God's talking about here. What's he talking about? The self that Jesus speaks of is the natural, rebellious sinful self, the one that desires the things of the world as opposed to the things of God. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look with me at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So when Jesus is talking about denying yourself, he takes it one step further and he says, take up your cross. Now, an admonition to pick up a cross is an admonition to death, right? Because if you're in the first century, you're thinking of a cross in a whole different way than what you and I are. We see a cross on a wall today or hanging on a piece of jewelry on somebody's neck and it's pretty, right? It's shiny, smooth. What's so rugged about that? Nothing. It's been sanitized. But the cross of the first century? The one they're thinking of when Jesus says, pick up your cross, that's got like pieces of flesh hanging from it. It's got blood dripping from it. It's rugged. It's a rugged cross. Jesus said, that's, that's what you're going to pick up. If you're going to follow me, pick up your cross and identify with what I'm doing See, for a follower of Jesus in the first century to pick up his cross and start walking towards him, that's a person who's going on a death march. So see, see, that's why I say Jesus is saying some things that are really radical here. He's talking about making him Lord over every circumstance in your life. Let me show you these three things on the screen. I, I'm not sure if they made it into your notes, but here's what I see him saying. First of all, he's saying we've got to surrender ourselves to him unconditionally. 
The second thing, we got to identify with him. That's where he's talking about picking up the cross, even if it means suffering and death. And the third thing is, we got to follow him obediently wherever he leads, uncontested. Go back into the story, verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Just for the benefit of all of us in the room, make sure we're on the same page. Who is Jesus talking to in this moment? Say it real loud. All of us, yeah. So in the first century, who's the crowd right in front of him? Who's he just called? The, the, the disciples, right? So he's got individuals who have professed him as God, son of the living God, you are the Christ. Individuals who have already acknowledged him, believers. So he's not telling them how to be saved, right? He's talking to them about how to make the most of their life for Christ. Do you notice the motivation? He's not talking to unbelievers. He says, do it for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. So if we understand in context, he's talking to believers here. When he says losing your life, he's talking about something bigger than this issue that we've already dealt with, the salvation issue. He's talking about this individual of a person who could miss out on the greatest opportunities in the world when God brings opportunities and you just say, no, I'd rather not pursue that. God, I've got a different agenda. I've got things I want to go after. So Jesus' response is, you may gain the whole world and yet have nothing left to show for your life when you stand before God. You may have salvation, but what about all the opportunities I bring your way? Now, he's talking both to believers and non-believers because he drew the crowd into him as well. And then he goes into this in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, this is where it ends this morning. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And you've spent like 25 minutes working through this passage with me. Why in the world is Jesus linking that statement with Peter's position? Why link those two together? Because of this biblical principle we've been talking about this morning, faith is my response to what God has revealed. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. Has God revealed who Jesus is? Have you landed on personally, Jesus is blank? Have you landed on an answer to that? Because if, if you're calling him Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're calling him Lord, you've got to do something with what God has revealed. In the first century, Jesus said to the crowd that's standing in front of him, we've got an adulterous and sinful generation. Do you think he would say the same thing of 2016? Okay. So let's understand this word adulterous in the way that it's used biblically. When God spoke of the nation of Israel, and he called them an adulterous behaving society. Those are individuals who understood what their commitment was supposed to be to, but they chose something else instead. That's, that's what adultery really is. I know what I'm supposed to be committed to, but I choose this. 
Jesus says, I've got an adulterous generation in front of me, a sinful and adulterous generation. See, God really knows the circumstances of the world that you live in. And he also knows it is impossible for God to come into the midst of an anti-God society without there being hostility. It's just natural. Where you mix God with anti-God, there's going to be friction. And when holiness meets unholiness, a violent reaction is inevitable. So logically, there's a cost to being associated with Jesus and his kingdom. Amen, church? There's a cost. So Jesus says, it's going to require you to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and follow me to make the most of the generation that I've placed you in. So what you're reading this morning, what you're understanding is not just a call to salvation. It's not just a call to recognize that Jesus is master and savior. It's also a call to unconditional surrender to the Lord of lords and King of kings who knows his ways. And he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So high as the heaven above the earth are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Isaiah recorded it well because we're seeing it lived out here in the first century with Jesus. As a people, we are prone to really want our way as opposed to God's way. God says, have you, have you dealt with the issue of unconditional surrender yet? You may be proclaiming me Christ, but have you made me Lord God really started pushing on my heart yesterday afternoon specifically that we would end the service by praying about this and not just me praying. But I'm going to give you 20, 30, 40 seconds, whatever you want, 50 seconds a minute to just talk to God right now. If he's pushed on your heart and, and you're at this place where you say, I think I've been doing that. I think I've been holding back. I think I'm not all in and I want to surrender. Maybe you're really feeling that right now, so I'm just inviting you to go before the Father and ask him to help you with this because it's going to require his strength, right? We can't do this on our own. This is God's strength working through us. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning and you find maybe it's even a sin issue in your life where you keep finding yourself failing over and over again, maybe you've never given it over to the lordship of Jesus Christ and who he is. Go ahead, I invite you just to talk to the Father and then I will close it out. God, I recognize that you may have pushed really hard on somebody's heart this morning. Way harder than I could possibly do as just a man. And the power of your Holy Spirit who dwells within this place and within us, we recognize that you do things that we can't do and perhaps you have used your word this morning to do that very thing. 
And there's someone here who's wanting to surrender in a way that they've never known before, but they find themselves falling short. God, I ask that you would surround them with the power of your Holy Spirit and give them strength, supernatural determination to make you Lord over everything. It's what you've called us to. Father, I pray that you would not allow us to quickly and easily forget what we have learned this morning. I ask for that. Just as a stone hits a body of water and causes a ripple, Father, will you ripple this throughout our week ahead of us? Turn it into a wave if you need to. Use us for this generation that we live in and make us bold witnesses for you. God, we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.